Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Today we have as our co-host Arthur Wilczynski, formerly of uh, the government and now rocking a much more casual look uh, that you guys can't see, but I'm enjoying as he's involved in many post-retirement activities, including going through heaps and heaps of dusty boxes, trying to get things that should be unclassified, unclassified. He's Mr. Transparency at this moment in time. Uh, welcome to Back to Battle Rhythm, Arthur. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, the story that of the past couple of weeks has been the cabinet shuffle, and I wanted to get your take on it because you you know more about the incoming guy, Bill Blair. I have strong opinions about defense. There's lots of people who've been shuffled, but we'll focus mostly on the ins and outs at the defense, and then we'll get to public safety. I've been a, a pretty big fan of Anita Anand. I'll put my biases on the table. She's appeared twice on my classes, my civil military relations class. She's been on the podcast. So just by proximity alone, I'm biased to her that she was she was open and honest. That she's a, a former professor also makes me biased towards her. One of the most amusing things that she said in the podcast, which reflects both on her predecessor and her successor, is I asked her if she read all the promotion files. And she said, of course, I read all the all the promotion files. I do all of that. Don't you do all the reading before you go into class? And I was like, uh, and so diligent, uh, I think is an understatement. She worked really hard. She had to manage a war, our side of the Ukraine war, getting equipment to, to Ukraine, developed a good relationship with the Ukrainians and worked closely with other NATO countries, despite not really having much of a past history in diplomacy. And she was pushing through civilian control of the military through the culture change stuff and other other measures. And so the thing I'll always raise is it takes more than a couple of years to institutionalize change. And so having her come and go is probably not great. So that's my quick take on it. Arthur, what's your take on the cabinet shuffle, particularly when it comes to defense? So very quickly, I, I'm I'm also going to fanboy on, on uh, Anita Anand. I thought that she was a very competent, smart, dedicated cabinet minister. I had the privilege of actually briefing her directly a couple of times and found her remarkably smart. You know, she was able to uh, to pick out the key issues and, and push on them very, very quickly. Can't be said about all uh, all ministers in those kinds of complex files. Like you, I, I you know, I thought that having someone like her lead the culture change that is required within uh, the Canadian Armed Forces and within D and D more broadly was important. And it's uh, and for me, it was sad to uh, to see her go. That said, I mean, she's moving into I think a very interesting portfolio at Treasury Board, and I know that most folks outside of the uh, public service bubble in Ottawa don't really know what Treasury Board does, but essentially it is the due diligence function in terms of how government spends money and making sure that you have a, a strong political hand on that on that file. I think is is important. That said, and I think it will have a, 
a, a potentially negative effect on any kind of aspirations that, that she may have to the, the big chair in, in any kind of uh, post-Trudeau uh, environment. It's really hard to get visibility outside of, uh, of Ottawa uh, with Treasury Board, but if she succeeds in doing that, I think that that's, uh, that's great. And I think that it'll actually prepare her well in terms of the machinery of government and being an even more effective uh, minister in in other portfolios, you know, post the one that uh, that she has coming up. Now her replacement. Well, let's before we get to the replacement. So let me just uh, ask you a follow up question to this. One of the challenges the liberals have had has been able to deliver on their promises that they famously had a deliverology summit shortly after they're coming to power in 2015. And we've seen a lot of things happen over the past several years, the passport crisis for one, that where the government just can't do the things it promises to do. And lots of people like to blame Treasury Board because they're the ones who essentially write the checks and make sure the checks are spent right, uh, correctly. So do you think that she can make the Treasury Board either more flexible and quicker or reduce the fear that every organization has about submitting requests for Treasury Board? Is that something that a, a Treasury Board president can do? I think a Treasury Board president can help focus the government's priorities on, on the essential. I think that having an aspiration to, to streamline uh, you know, the, the processes of uh, Treasury Board uh, you know, uh, in a broad sense, that's a big ask. And that'll t that, that kind of culture change is, is, I think, longer term than shorter term. I think where she could, uh, she could help is by really helping her colleagues prioritize what it is that they want to achieve in the, in the shorter term, and then helping shepherd those, uh, those initiatives through the processes mm -hmm. that uh, the Treasury Board requires. I mean, like Treasury Board is about oversight, it is about due diligence. And so, you know, inherently, that does slow down, you know, various, various things. And that's by design. And I know that 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 peeves people, including folks like me who used to have to try and get things through the board. But I think it's an important, uh, important function. Again, uh, I think that Anand can help prioritize and she can work very closely with her colleague, Minister Freeland in finance in terms of the, uh, you know, the uh, the policy uh, that finance leads and the process that treasury boards leads tr to, again, focus the government attention on what it thinks it needs to. You know, I think that that's a dual-edged sword for, uh, for defense. While Anand would be, I think, an effective champion for defense, I'm not sure that that defense spending is going to necessarily be very, very high on the political agenda of the government moving forward. When you started talking about priorities, that was the thing I was thinking about, which is the rumors coming out of whoever's leaking things out of the government has been that one of the things that reasons why Anand might have been shipped out of defense was she was asking for too much money, that the defense policy update that is overdue was turned back from the prime minister's office. Remember, the, for those who are listening, the prime minister's office is all about the politics of things. This uh, pushed it back because it was asking for too much money. That's a problem because Trudeau has actually made a lot of promises, promised to keep on building the ships, promised to buy the, the F-35s, promised to modernize NORAD, promised to have a robust presence in Latvia. I'm not sure he's made a promise to reverse the personnel crisis in the military, but it should be a high priority. All that costs a lot of money. And if they want a defense policy update that comes back and says, hey, we don't need to spend any more money, that, that runs against not what Anand was thinking about doing for the military, but what Trudeau has promised for the military. So the fact that she's getting moved out, possibly because she was advocating for more military spending and the prime minister's office doesn't want that, wants somebody more passive in that office, that's a real problem uh, if we want to actually have a military do the things that we promised to do. Well, the, the alternative solution is to change our promises, change our commitments, and that would reduce our spending. But I, nobody seems to be willing to do that either. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that the reason she was she was moved was because she was pushing 
pushing too hard in terms of of, of spending at, at national defense. That's, you know, that's inside baseball. And I think that very few people on the outside would know and moving her out, quite frankly, into a place like, uh, like treasury board wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. negatively affect that if that was a strategic outcome that she was, that she was seeking. I mean, cabinet shuffles are political processes, right? It's about sending messages and specifically about sending messages to caucus, sending messages to broadly to Canadians and to try and affect the political dynamic that's, uh, that's out there, uh, you know, in a, in a time when the current government is, is facing some very, very strong political head Headwinds in the broader population. So I'm I'm not sure that that uh, you know a defense policy uh, review or update that was going to you know have some dollar signs associated with it was a strong motivating factor for for moving her. PMO could always have have just kiboshed it or made it uh, dialed it back. Privy Council office does does that kind of stuff always and puts it more a more realistic spin on it. So does Treasury Board. That's one of the things that Treasury Board does is make sure that that defense uh, that all spending is is constrained within within limits. So I don't think that that's that, that's a reason why. But I think that she would have been far more, you know, this is a personal opinion, I think she would have been far more effective in shepherding a defense policy review through cabinet than Bill Blair would. That's a, that's a personal thing. I mean, you know, maybe Blair is, has, has developed more, more political chops that he's built some, uh, some political capital, but you know, the, the history of his, of his performance in places like public safety and the complexity of trying to manage things like culture change, like uh, the broad issues of, around security and intelligence that that portfolio is responsible for. He wasn't great at it. It was one of the reasons why he, you know, he got hived off to this emergency management role that he's had for a number of years. And Mendicino was was uh, was moved from immigration into public safety to help. Uh, address some of those things that that Blair wasn't successful at. Let's flesh that out a little bit, which is what did he not do or what, how did he not push forward culture change? What were the specifics? Because that's going to be obviously the comparison, which is Anita Anand was pushing forward culture change at the, mili- the military. Blair didn't fail to do it at, at justice. So how did he fail so that, that now we can oh. be predisposed to being disappointed by what he does at, <laughs> at defense? Well, it, was, it was at public safety, not, 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 not justice. And, oh, sorry. And I think so public safety is has a large constellation of portfolio agencies. Yeah. And what that means is organizations like like CSIS, like the RCMP, like the Correction Service, Canada Border Services Agency, all of these organizations have had similar kinds of histories and challenges in terms of, of difficulty w- engaging the broad population, difficulty with transparency, history of, of you know uh, harassment and 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 racism, particularly in the RCMP. The you know the inquiries that that have consistently pointed to the challenges within the public safety portfolio date back many many years, and B- Blair had only ownership of that in terms of, of the political oversight and whether or not he moved the bar, I think the, the, the short answer is uh, no. And so I think that that's why it's surprising that many of the same kind of particular cultural changes within security apparatus that we see in, in the Canadian Armed Forces and in D&D and the broader security portfolio, his track record of addressing those when he was at public safety was, was not great. So I mean, I think we'll have to you know, measure our expectations about what he can, what he can do in, in national defense. Now, to, you know, to play devil's advocate with my own argument, Blair himself says that, hey, when he was the chief of police in Toronto, he was responsible for the largest and most diverse police force in the country, fair enough. I think that that, that that does provide him some insight in terms of the type of culture that he has to face. But the question is, even when one looks at, at the Toronto Police Service, 
is whether or not during his term there or subsequently at public safety, he's been effective in uh, addressing those those cultural changes. And and I, I don't think he has. And, and that's one of the part, most troubling parts about his experiences for me. Uh, I've long been on the record arguing that we shouldn't have generals, retired generals, retired admirals be minister of defense because they have a military mindset. And one of the key aspects of the military mindset is to have is for the military to be autonomous, for the civilians to have a very, very light touch and not to engage in much civilian control. That oversight is to be limited. And that's been a tradition in Canada. And I think it's caused a lot of problems. We only have bouts of civilian control of the military after crises like Somalia, like after the Deschamps and then the Arbor reports. And what Canadian police are famous for is having a very similar attitude of thinking that there should be no political interference in policing. And that annoys the crap out of me because I understand that we shouldn't have a mayor say, you know, arrest my opponent. I mean, this this is sort of the thing that Trump has been talking about. But there's there's a world of difference between saying, hey, arrest my opponent and hey, we have a convoy in town. What are we going to do about it? Right. Uh, And the thing is, is that this is a common property of, of Canada, across Canada and of the United States of cops having extreme autonomy and thinking that the politicians should stay out of their business. And if you're an ex-cop who's now elevated to the top of the chain of command of the military, you might hear military officers go, hey, you know, we need to all have autonomy. And he's going to go, yeah, that's great. You should actually have autonomy. And the military has proven that with their autonomy, they do stupid stuff. They abuse power, they engage in sexual misconduct, they do other things that are wrong. And so the lesson of the various reports we've had is that we need to have civilian control of the military. And Anand was doing some of that. How is it going to play out? We don't know because she didn't have enough time. But it's something that we need to have. And I think making Blair Minister of National Defense suggests to me that Trudeau, A, doesn't care about defense, and B, thinks, hey, you know, we tried civilian control. It didn't really get me votes. It didn't really lose me votes. So we're just going to try to have a a caretaker, Minister of National Defense that doesn't do anything, doesn't make the news, and I can focus on things I care about, which is anything but defense and foreign policy. So... That, I mean, that, that, that's the signal I get from the choice of Blair. Yeah, I mean, I think that the caretaker is, I think, uh, an interesting uh, way of describing it. I don't think that, that the prime minister was looking for a, a visionary to bring a particular uh, approach to Canada's defense and security uh, security policy. I think he wanted the, the, the status quo. Repeatedly, polls show in Canada that, that defense and security issues are really low on, on, uh, on the range of, of questions that Canadians care about. Uh, when given the option of, I think, you know, three priorities out of a list of, of you know, uh, about 10 or, or 12, I think the people flagged uh, defense about 7% of the time when they had three, uh, three cho- choices. But the striking thing about those kinds of surveys and surveys that the CDSN has done has that doesn't mean that the government is constrained. It means that they don't get rewarded for it, but they don't get penalized for it. And so they could spend more money. Polls show that Canadians would like to spend more money on defense, that generally the polls have shown that Canadians understand that the military needs more money. They should have more money. They're not going to vote on it, but they're not going to vote against it. So taking defense seriously is not a vote gainer, but it's not a vote loser either. And so no, right. the, gov- the government has the flexibility and this government just doesn't care. It would rather invest its time and its resources elsewhere. And it's understandable from a domestic political perspective, but on the flip side of it is they have latitude that they're not using. And that's what's frustrating because, again, the, the prime minister has made a series of promises. When I was in Latvia in June, the constant refrain from the Latvians, from the NATO people, from the Canadians there was, 
there have been a lot of promises made here. People are expecting something. Let's see what happens. And at the summit, he announced a variety of decisions that were part of the keeping of the promises. You know, we're going to send 2,000 troops there as opposed to 800. We're going to spend 2.8 billion dollars, but only 1.2 of that is new. So it's not entirely clear if this is going to be well funded and if it's sustainable. And ultimately, the biggest crisis the military has is the personnel crisis. That it's down more than 10%, which means that people are either doing two jobs or jobs that aren't being done. And that does two things. It reinforces the current spiral, which is people are overworked, so they want to leave. And people who are see the overwork, they want to join. So that makes the power. And it means we can't be doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. And we can't do them well. And that requires money. It's not just a culture change problem. It's not just a leadership problem. It's a, we need better food. We need a better barracks. We need a better pay. We need to figure out how to handle moving so that people aren't stressed out as moving. We have to have better daycare. It requires money. And if they don't throw money at personnel, they can put the personnel chapter of the defense policy update at the front, just like they put it at the front of the strong, secure, engaged defense review. And it won't mean a damn thing. And I don't think that Blair is the guy who's going to come out and go, hey, we're now going to spend a lot of money on personnel. He may say it, but nobody's going to believe it unless there's real money attached to it. And if PMO is fighting, you know, budget increases for the military because they've got other priorities. Yes, it won't lose them votes, but it won't win them votes either. And uh, this is one of those places where they have the space to maneuver and they're not going to use it. And that's very, very frustrating. It, it is frustrating. And I particularly focus on personnel because, you know, these are people's lives and, and this is how uh, the kind of life that they sign up for and, and whether or not they can, again, have an, a, a productive and uh, uh, you know experience in a career in, in the military, one that isn't uh, hampered and frustrated by all of the uh, the, the aspects that that, uh, that you identified. And I keep on hearing that. I know my, my, I've got family who are in the military, and that was one of the things that, that they consistently complained about. But uh, again, I'm, I'm, I share your skepticism that the government is going to focus on, on those issues, particularly in, in the short term. I think that Blair will get his marching orders in terms of his, uh, you know, his, his, uh, his mandate letter. I think it will focus on those very public commitments that the prime minister has made at the, at the summit and the, mm -hmm. In terms of expanding the, the the presence in Latvia, I think that those are, are are important things. But I don't think that Blair will have the scope to go beyond what has already been yep. uh, been been promised. And if Anand, in her review, was focusing on on the delta between what's already been committed and what needs to be done in order to address the systemic problems in, in the cap, and if that comes along with a big price tag, there will be no political appetite, I think, at uh, at the Privy Council office or at the Prime Minister's office to spend that kind of money given the opportunity costs of, of focusing on other things that Canadian like you know the Canadians actually are going to make ballot box decisions about. That's depressing enough. So let's move on to something more <laughs> uplifting, the ongoing coup in Niger. Oh uh, yeah. This is not the first African country that we have sent significant amounts of money to train their military and the Americans have sent to train the military to then launch a coup. And I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying that our soldiers are teaching these folks how to coup. And I don't think that the Americans are teaching these folks how to coup. It suggests that whatever training we're giving them, it's not instilling civilian control of the military. Now, maybe that that there's only so much you can do as outsiders to do that. But we spent an, a lot of money on, on Niger and a lot of money in Mali. And we're getting out precisely the outcomes that we don't want. Now, one of the reasons why we've been spending money on Mali and Niger is we've been trying to support stable governance of those places so that way they don't ship you know, more refugees to Europe that would then radicalize European political systems. And I guess the, the incredible cynic would be, hey, this is okay because at least these militaries will govern well enough that they won't generate refugee flows 
more than a failed state. I don't buy that. But as someone who used to be an ambassador, is engaged in foreign relations, has seen these kinds of training things going on, you've watched this. What's your take on what the, the events in Niger and should Canada roll back its uh, military training since it doesn't seem to be fostering more democracy in the world? So I think we have to be we have to take a, a bit of a step back to look at, at the specificity of what happened in Niger, but also what happened in Mali. I share uh, your your view that, uh, you know, Canadians went in there with good intentions to try and build capacity for, for the security uh, apparatus, which is different from the democratic or at least part, you know, it's only part of the democratic development of those of, of those countries. And it, it's hard for military military training to be separated out from broader democratic development in uh, in, in the region. And I think that the instability more more broadly right across the Sahel has uh, has had a profound effect on a number of, of countries. I think that when we're looking at at the you know the deep poverty, the corruption, the, the you know the climatic effects, the desertification of the region, you know making sure that 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 militaries are are, are capable only can address so much. So I don't want Canada to just abandon the concept of, of providing effective security training, but I think we need to really uh, look at this as part of a broader basket of, uh, of issues and look at how we engage uh, with Sub-Saharan Africa to address the, the broad instability. We also need to, I think, be mindful of, of external actors. One of the things that I think has been mentioned in the media, and I would like to sort of echo, the role of, of Russia, and specifically the, uh, the, the Wagner Group in the region, it's had a long-standing uh, destabilizing effect in the region. It plays on anti-colonial uh, narratives that are are very very strong in places like like Chad, like Mali, and like Niger. And I, you know, I think that countries like France, Canada, the U.S., and others really need to take a bit of a step back and, and sort of recalibrate how do we engage in these parts of the world in a way that doesn't amplify animosity towards the West and that finds a way, again, to stabilize the countries and the governance in a way that, that coups uh, don't find fertile ground and support uh, amongst their populations, which we're yeah. seeing a bit of that right now in Niger. Well, this is one of the striking things, uh, which is in the overall scheme of things, Russia has been seen as an anti-colonial power because they sort of wear the mantle of the Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union was imperial. Just ask the people in the Baltics who are now free. Ask the Europeans who have their fire. And, and, and now now in, in the present day, ask the Ukrainians about Russia's current imperialism, ask the folks in Georgia, ask the folks in a bunch of different places that, that Russia is an imperial power. It's just been able to ride the wave and of, of the past. I was at some conference, I'm trying to remember when, where it, the Ukrainians were trying to figure out their messaging and other folks were trying to figure out their messaging. They're talking to countries in Africa about, focus groups in Africa about the imperial messaging. And they're like, don't try that with us. It's not going to work because we don't see Russia as an imperial power. And you know, of course, the Ukrainians are pulling their hair out, but there's only so much you can do to to change in the, the existing narratives. And so we need to figure out ways that that make the Wagner group and the Russians less effective and just calling them imperial is not going to cut it. I guess the question yeah. then is, is for our military training efforts, I don't see us cutting back on a lot of that. We've had military trainers in countries that have cooed before. So I think part of this is we need to recognize our limitations of what, what the trainers can do, but part of it also need, we need to have a right. better, what, what, we need to have a better understanding of, well, civil military relations and how do we prevent coups in the countries that we're operating in? Because we've been so focused on state failure where the state is unable to exert control over parts of its territory that we've forgotten that the biggest threat to democracy in Africa since decolonization has not been state failure. It's been 
coups d'etat. And we thought it w- that was going away, that it was no longer hip, but whoever thought that was wrong. And it's so it's, it, it, it never really went away, it, but it's it's now back in countries that we care about. And so we need the governments of the day need to figure out what are the lessons that they can learn from the shaggy academics who, who kept on studying coups to figure out how to instill civilian control of the military. I mean, one of the big miracles of the 21st century that we don't take seriously is you had a lot of countries face a lot of troubles in Eastern Europe, the 1990s and, and the 2000s. And while we've had some democratic backsliding, none of it has been driven by the military, not in Hungary, not in Poland. And even in, in Turkey, it has been not the military that has been driving the, the authoritarian direction. And so NATO, particularly in the newer democracies in Eastern Europe, has done a good job, along with the EU, of fostering civilian control of the military. That was one of the priorities of the admissions processes. And so we need to think about what are the lessons learned from that experience that could help be used to foster better civilian control of the military, enduring civilian control of the military, democratic control of the military in African countries. Uh, I mean, the, the irony for me is that my current projects are raising big questions about the adequacy of civilian control of the military in Canada and other democracies where parliament doesn't play the role it's playing. That's that's a book that we finished this week or next. And then the next project is about how ministries of defense often don't th- see their job as oversight. So there's problems on, on the more established democracy side, but we're not having coups. And so we need to figure out how to encourage folks not to have coups elsewhere. That means it's not about military training so much as, as it might be about con- training the civilians. Yeah, it's, a, it's about governance, and it's about making sure that the populations feel that that governance is, is in their interest. And, you know, I think that one of the things for me that's important is for Canada maybe to take that, like I said, step back and actually understand what is it that it's trying to achieve? What are, again, <laughs> this is a bit of a broken record for all of us who, who, who've been observing this space for a long time. What actually is our foreign policy that we want to then operationalize through effective uh, military training missions? What, what are the outcomes that we're seeking for Canada? And uh, if one of those is ensuring stable, democratic institutions uh, in, in various places that we engage in, I think you're right. I think that, you know, learning from how these things have worked well and effectively in, in Eastern Europe is, is, is a model. Same, uh, same in terms of parts of, of Asia, recognizing that there is obviously a, a specificity to the experience on the African continent that is, uh, that is different. And, you know, trying to work at, uh, at this uh, perhaps a little bit more collaboratively than we have in the past. I mean, uh, these are incredibly complex, you know, situations politically, economically, culturally, diplomatically. Uh, lots of folks have been working and trying to solve these problems for many, many years. A lot of them are very, very earnest and dedicated in trying to to address these challenges. But somehow we 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 keep you know being less than effective in in the long run. And I think part of it is as as Western countries, we're easily distracted. We don't necessarily have again. The, the kind of competence I think that is required to effectively engage in in supporting African development. And we, we need to understand that as a continent, Africa is, I think, moving further away from uh, from the West. Just look at the uh, the summit that took place in St. Petersburg, you know, the other day uh, in terms of the, the Russia-Africa uh, uh, summit. Putin was had a very significant win by having as many leaders as he did in, in Africa. South Africa, which was, you know, one of the, uh, in the post- apartheid era under Mandela's leadership in the first number of years post uh, post apartheid was a beacon to the continent around democratic transition. But even that's backsliding now. And I think we have to uh, understand uh, better 
what's going on, to again, be humble in, in terms of our, our, our thinking about what are effective tools to address it, and be open to hearing some hard truths from the Africans themselves about how countries like Canada, like the US, like France, have not been effective in addressing the systemic challenges that they face in terms of enhancing the well-being of their populations. It's complicated. I know lots of folks are engaged. I don't want to, you know, uh, consistently backseat drive, though that seems to be the, one of the benefits of retirement. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but, you know, so I feel for my colleagues who work on these issues in terms of trying to, to address it, but we need lots of, of creative thinking and not be, you know, sort of stuck in the way that we've done in the uh, things in the past, including on like simply sending a military training team uh, when we want to do some form of, and I'm, I'm using air quotes by, <laughs> with my fingers, uh, capacity building uh, in, in countries like uh, uh, like Niger. Uh, sometimes sending uh, a number of military trainers is a very visible manifestation of support, but it might not be the right tool to address the specific challenge that Canada wants to address in those countries. But we don't necessarily have the folks required to do the uh, or the training or the or the uh, the capacity to send the kind of uh, of people that would actually be more effective in addressing the instability in those countries. This goes back to uh, the early part of our conversation where we tend to think we tend to overuse the military because they have personnel standing by that. GAC doesn't have, and they have a bigger budget that GAC does not have. Of course, we don't also don't have civilian control of GAC either, so that's something else to think about. <laughs> but we then have a limited recipe for, or limited limited recipes for how to handle things. And sending a few trainers is our way to handle how to foster democracy. But there's only so much you can do to get people. You know, our training is about getting people to shoot straighter. How maybe to be better about discriminating between civilians and and military. You know, legitimate military targets. How maybe not to abuse human rights. But that's not about how to not coup and why no. not to coup. And oddly enough, you know, uh, sending a bunch of folks from Treasury Board over to Niger to help them in terms of effective governance and oversight of public spending isn't high on anybody's list. <laughs> Uh, well, and, and, and while Minister Anand might might really miss some of the aspects of the defense portfolio, including those kinds of deployments abroad, I'm pretty sure most of the public servants who like you know working at, at Treasury Board aren't up for that kind of task. You can't work from home, uh, work in, in Mali or Niger from home. It's bandwidth isn't as good. But you know, speaking of civilian uh, control over the military, it's interesting also to see how how things are evolving in Israel. And I don't know if if you've seen a number of media reports about reservists, senior military officials who've been warning the Netanyahu government that its uh, that its efforts on judicial reform are undermining Israeli security by alienating many many actors in the defense and security establishment. Yeah, I know. I've been following this because. You know, we don't want to root for the military folks to behave badly and, be, you know, subverting civilian control of the military. But this is one of those things we have to think about, which is when democracy is at risk, what is the role of the military? And Israel is a special case, one that I have not studied because it is such a special case that if I studied it, I couldn't generalize about any other place because pretty much everybody in the political system has served in the military. Most of them are continuing to serve as reservists. And so it's hard to talk about civilian control of the military when the military is, is so deeply integrated into the political system. But it's really striking that you have, you know, but people join the military, people are taught in the military that their support, that their job is to defend Israeli democracy. And it turns out the greatest threat to Israeli democracy these days are not Palestinians, but the current government. It's undermining democracy, that the issue at stake itself is the courts, which are one of the few breaks 
that exist on any government, but particularly Netanyahu's government, a government that has, you know, Netanyahu has had previous brushes with the law that have, I guess, worked out okay and that he hasn't been imprisoned, but has never really absolved him of any kind of guilt for all different kinds of things. So we have Israeli soldiers, special operations forces, helicopter pilots, all the rest saying, we're not going to fly. We're not going to, we're not going to operate for you while this is going on. That puts a lot of pressure and that worked in the spring. It does not seem to be working now because uh, Netanyahu was just was waiting everybody out and was continuing to push forward, hasn't learned any lessons. It's going to be, I think, really challenging for for everybody in a particular political context because I, you're right up front also that uh, the security situation in Israel is is different than most other you know liberal democracies. It faces existential challenges and it, its military is so embedded in its culture and in its and its identity of of its of its population that that service in the military is intrinsic to Israeli uh, Israeli citizenship. And when you have uh, the kind of, of uh, reaction in the, in the uh, reserves, even amongst sitting senior officials, it was, it was quite striking earlier on this uh, this year when the, the Israeli defense minister actually, you know, called on, on Netanyahu to slow, uh, slow down the, the, the judicial reforms because of the effect it was having on national security. The man was fired and then unfired by Netanyahu. Just, a, you know, it goes to the complexity of, uh, of the situation. The bottom line is, how do you have checks and balances in a democratic society? So in places like Canada, we're a federal country. Right? We've got provinces, territories, and the, and the, and the national government. Uh, you have a bicameral system in, in, in Canada. You can question whether or not the Senate is uh, <laughs> uh, given the fact that it still is appointed, but it still is part of the checks and balances built into our constitution. You've got courts that have been very uh, you know, activist, perhaps too activist for, for the likes of some, but all of that, that tension, uh, those dynamics between different orders of government and branches of government, I think are are really important in democracies. In Israel, you don't have federalism. You, you don't have a bicameral system. The only You don't even have a constitution. You have uh, the courts that have been used to, to manage the sort of the conversation in terms of uh, keeping a check on parliamentary excess. And with that you know, uh, being frayed away, what is the role of a, of a military in terms of defending the essence of a democracy? And I think it's, you know, if you don't have that history of, of accountability, if you don't have that history of checks and balances, I think it, it could be quite, uh, quite dangerous when people will take it on upon themselves, particularly uh, in institutions like the military or the police or the security services to try and be the defenders of, uh, of democracy. We might like it, or some of us might like it, you know, who are, you know, seen as more, you know, quote unquote, progressive than the than the reactionary neo-fascists that are supporting Netanyahu, people like Smotrich and Ben Vir. But it, it could easily turn the other way too. So we have to be mindful of what's appropriate. And I personally, like I, I will consistently have discomfort when militaries behave too politically, even when it is a complex situation like the one in Israel. Yeah, I, I agree. I think one of the challenges we had during the Trump era was the military would try to resist Trump's various things. And it's like, yay, the military is subverting civilian control of the military. Yeah, oh, that's great. <laughs> Whereas here, it's a little different in the sense that it's it's basically a strike. It's basically the military say members of the military. The military itself is not doing anything. The military is not trying to overthrow Netanyahu. The military is a corporate organization is not doing anything. It's individuals of the military are saying collectively saying we are not going to participate in this military endeavor while our democracy is at risk. So it's a little different, but it's still it's still troubling. But in these situations, the question is, which is more troubling, the the subversion of, of, of democracy or the military members of the military expressing their political preferences? Again, because 
Israel is the military is so thoroughly integrated in the political system, you really can't have significant political change without the military being a, a player. Whereas in Canada, you know, if this were happening in Canada, it would be shocking and appalling because the military is just not expected to have any voice at all in the political system because it is not a relevant player except for when it comes to you know when we're trying to make decisions about the military itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in Israel also, you you have no political future if you don't have a stellar military service and a stellar military record. They will always be, I think, a very important political litmus test for any political leadership in, in Israel, which is different from other uh, from other countries. So I think that that's uh, that's particularly unique. But what's interesting, I think, from my perspective around you know, the various issues that we've touched upon uh, today is that whole role about, uh, you know, what's the difference between effective oversight of the military and political interference in the military? How do you, how do you distinguish the, you know, uh, the, the difference between what's an appropriate role for the military in a political system and what's the appropriate role for politics in defense? And I think that all of the, the examples we talked about in terms of, you know, civilian control of the Canadian military, the the coup in Niger or the actions of Israeli soldiers in and and reservists in reaction to the the changes the proposed changes there demonstrate that this is complex and I think a lot of it has to be looked at through the specific lens of each country's experience. With that, we must move on. We're going to have an interview after this segment with the Transforming Military Culture uh, Minds Network. They're a group of scholars who are trying to figure out how to transform the military's culture. They are come from a more critical end of the spectrum. And they've been working really hard. And so I talked with them a few weeks ago about the efforts they're making to try to work with government and how to foster culture change. I kind of wish I was able to talk to them after the cabinet shuffle to get their takes on that. But this happened uh, prior to the cabinet shuffle. Arthur, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I always appreciate your insights uh, as your past experience was all over the government. You have a, a lot of important insights to have on a variety of issues, both domestic and international. My original discomfort with having a former cop be t head of the, the military only deepened when I saw you and other people who actually follow public safety raise issues about Blair's past performance. Uh, we're living in interesting times, and I'm glad that you were able to provide us with some insights into all this hullabaloo. Always a pleasure to chat with you, Steve. I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, to exchange and looking forward to the next time. Well, we'll be seeing you a, a couple of weeks at the CDSN Summer Institute. And it means that next episode is actually going to be a special episode where we're going to launch another podcast in our podcast network. But for more for that, listen to us in two weeks. Thanks again, Arthur, and enjoy the rest of the summer. Today on Battle Rhythm, we have the team behind Transforming Military Cultures, uh, three women based across Central and Eastern Canada, if I'm not mistaken, to speak to us about what they're doing with their Minds-funded network. So before we get into it, let's have them introduce it themselves. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Maya Eichler. I'm an associate professor at Mount St. Vincent University, where I teach in political studies and women's studies, and I'm also the director of a research center at Mount St. Vincent University, which is called the Center for Social Innovation and Community Engagement in Military Affairs. And is there a way to pronounce that acronym or do we just always Sisima say Sisima is how we call it. Yeah. I always wondered what it, how it was pronounced. So thank you very much, Sisima. Hi, everybody. I'm Nancy Tabor. I'm a professor at Brock University. And also at the moment, I'm the director of our adult education undergraduate program and a co-director of Transforming Military Cultures Network. I'm also a former military member. I used to be a Seeking Helicopter Tactical Coordinator.
Hi, great to be here, Steve. Thanks for having us. My name is Tammy George. I'm a faculty member in the Health Sciences School of Kinesiology at York University. My research areas are at the intersection of racial violence, mental health, and critical military studies. It's great to be here. Thanks. Well, we're glad to have you. The Transforming Military Cultures Network received funding, I want to say, last year. So this is the start of your second year. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to form this network and what have you been doing in your first year? Yeah, so the network uh, came into being really in the wake of the 2021 sexual misconduct crisis and the new departmental focus on culture change. So culture change became a priority area for the MINDS funding program. And so all three of us have been working on questions around gender integration, uh, military sexual violence, military and veteran issues more broadly for more than a decade. And so we decided to seize this opportunity to, to collaborate and work together and bring our perspective to the question of culture change. So like you said, Steve, the, the network was stood up in April of 2022. And the network brings together both Canadian and international academic researchers, defense scientists, military members, veterans, and other people with relevant lived experience who are all interested in, in collaborating and thinking about how to reimagine and transform Canadian armed forces culture. Okay. And I guess the first question is, is what does, when you speak about culture change, what does that include? What does that exclude? What, when you think about this, how vast or how narrow is your imagination about what you're trying to change? Because if my bias, not my bias, my perception, let, let me put it that way, is when I follow this stuff, I find that the focus is on sexual misconduct, which I think mm -hmm. is an important element. Is that what you mean by culture change? That you want to change the culture around gender and around sexuality and the dynamics that have been bred within the military that harm people based on, on those identities and those dynamics? Or is it broader than that about the larger culture of the Canadian Forces? Yeah, so our focus is definitely broader. And so what we are trying to do is really connect the dots between sexual misconduct, racism and white supremacy, sexism and misogyny, the legacy of colonialism, heteronormativity and homophobia, and really try to think about these intersecting root causes of the military culture problem. So it's a, it's quite a big task we've taken on. And the way we've presented our approach is to think about it in terms of an anti-oppression framework. Um, and maybe Tammy, if you want to talk a bit more about that to elaborate. Sure. I, you know, I mean, you know, the question is interesting, Steve, with respect to culture change, because even before we kind of began embarking on planning mm. the three years, we wondered, we debated quite a bit on whether or not culture change was even what we were trying to think about doing. And, you know, I would say that also, too, that the work that we do specifically with the CAF in collaboration is is not immune to sort of other cultural forces, right? So what we're starting to see across society is a huge movement across institutional change, I would say, writ large. And so in some ways, this project is part of those conversations as well. While they're happening in, you know, the institution specifically, they're not separate from other conversations that are happening around culture change, institutional change across society itself. And so I think that's really important for us to always keep in mind that while we are primarily focused on the calf, that we're always in conversation or alongside other social forces that are happening institutionally as well. And I think that's something really important to think about. 
And so with that, we as a network has have decided that what does it mean to actually think about critical theory alongside, let's say, military studies? These two areas have been brought together in any kind of meaningful way. And so what we decided is we would use an anti-oppression framework. And that that is a huge umbrella term for a number of different theories, right? Mm -hmm. So whether it's feminist theory, critical race theory, anti-colonial, decolonial theory, there is a number of critical theories historically that have spoken about change, but maybe not explicitly culture change, but have spoken about and theorized change for the last 50 or 60 years. So it's in that spirit that we are kind of beginning to think about how that particular area mm -hmm. of work can speak to particular ideas that are coming out of uh, military culture itself. And really, when we think about an anti-oppression framework, what we mean is how these larger structures mm -hmm. of power, colonialism, patriarchy, heteronormativity, white supremacy, how they have a bearing on individual identities and inequities. Mm -hmm. And what I look at with respect to that is from a learning lens. So how do members learn to value um, certain forms of culture, certain forms of identity? How do they learn to act to embody what is perceived to be an ideal military member, which typically when you look at the Canadian military, what is valued is someone who can demonstrate that they're dedicated to the military 24-7. They can deploy um, seven days a week, 365 days a year for the entirety of their entire career and that nothing else, no family commitments, no um, uh, temporary or more permanent disabilities, nothing interferes with that. And then so that the policies and the structures support that one type of person. And that is the person that you would typically see, particularly with respect to someone in an operational role, being promoted and moving up into the leadership. And then people look up to that and see, okay, this is the type of military member who's valued. And they learn to conform to a culture mm. um, that will have either the same thing happening to them, or then they'll often opt out and they're either forced to retire or they'll choose to retire themselves mm. because they're not seeing themselves fitting into this culture that is created by individual practices, but also by broader structures such as policies and universality of service policy, which mm -hmm. also um, privileges one type of body, someone who can fit into universality service, except for possibly some temporary times throughout the entirety of their career, and that the culture is supporting it. So it's mutually supporting what individuals see, what they do, and what the structures um, facilitate a certain type of valuing of a certain member. Okay, well, this is much broader than than my imagination. And when I criticize the narrow focus on sexual misconduct, I wasn't going necessarily in, into the directions of other identities. I think that those are important. But the way I was thinking in terms of what the stuff that came out of the news in 2021 was really about abuse of power and abuse of power facilitated sexual misconduct. But I think the larger problem was was abuse of power. And in, when I think about the culture change stuff being too narrow, part of it is, is that I think one aspect of the culture of the Canadian Armed Forces, that is the beliefs, the norms, the attitudes, the mutual understandings. I always have to remind myself what culture means because it, it, it can be elusive and you can tell me that my understanding is wrong. Is that all these things that in the CAF limit what they think outsiders have a role to play in all of it? I think of the, one of the challenges of the, the current CAF culture is it harms civilian control of the military because they think that the military are the sole experts in everything that they handle that the civilians are amateurs that don't have much of a role to play, that there's only one civilian that matters to them, which is the Minister of National Defense, and that they can pretty much write off whatever D&D does. And so I think one part of the culture change effort that needs to happen is to change attitudes and beliefs about civilian control of the military, about who's appropriate actors in this space. I know that when I say this stuff, I get I, I, I tend to think that the ongoing efforts by the military, by D&D, CPCC, all these institutions is very narrowly focused. And so 
I can only think that when you bring up your anti-oppression approach that talks about all these different kinds of things, some of them which military DD have been thinking about, they've been thinking about white supremacy, at least lately, because they understand that their proud boys and others are trying to penetrate the military. And this is a problem for both effectiveness and recruiting. But still, your approach is much broader. So do you mm -hmm. find that when you raise these other issues outside what might be the narrow imagination of culture change is for the military? How do they react to that? And how do you react to their reaction? Well, I think it's it's challenging for them, for sure. But I also think that the military is ready to have that deeper conversation. And we saw that also, you know, in the initiating directive of chief professional conduct and culture, for example, it says that they now know that, you know, in the past efforts didn't work because they were too superficial. They didn't focus on root causes. I'm still not sure whether they're focusing on root causes now, but I think there's an understanding that they need to go a little deeper. And so I think our anti-oppression framework speaks to that realization that we need something that goes beyond sort of reacting to media scandals, superficial approaches, focusing only on individual behavior. So I think the time is is ready, that you know, the time is ripe for a, a different approach. And I think our anti-oppression framework, I mean, it also speaks to what, what you just talked about in terms of power. Because power is connected to all of those root causes we mentioned, right, around uh, sexism and misogyny and colonialism and racism, white supremacy, heteronormativity. So that's all about power. But also with our anti-oppression framework, we are, you know, very firmly placing the military within broader societal power structures and looking at how they manifest within the military and how the military actually, in order to bring about change, has to both understand that it is part of those broader structures, but that it can also be an agent in changing them. And that's kind of what we want the military to, to recognize. And really the second pillar, like if I think of the anti-oppression framework as sort of the first key pillar of TMC work, the second pillar is exactly what you were talking about, the kind of military-civilian conversation that needs to happen to bring about culture change. And so the way that we have addressed that is, first of all, you know, more than half of our members are either current or former defense team members. It's very much a military-civilian collaboration on culture change. And so I don't think culture change is something that's going to happen just within the institution. It is definitely about reimagining military-civilian relations in Canada and how the average Canadian citizen can be more engaged, how there can be better oversight, how, you know, there can be just a better understanding of those two spheres. And I guess just also more of a national conversation about what kind of military Canadians want, what is the purpose of the Canadian armed forces in the, in the 21st century. I think those are all part of the culture change conversation that needs to take place. And in addition to the military and civilian bridges that we're building, we're also building them to military and academia. So what can us as external academics Academics with expertise over the decades in our various fields, um, both with respect to us as co-directors and the emerging scholars and the other members of our network, what can we contribute to militaries to change the discussion and have them think about things they might not have? So for instance, bringing in the theory of anti-oppression, what does that mean? How can people learn from that? And the connected theories, as Tammy was saying earlier, with critical disability studies, decolonial theory, feminist theory, critical race theory. So instead of just getting a one-liner, this is the definition of it, what can military members and and policymakers in particular, what can they learn from understanding mm -hmm. these theories at a deeper level? And so what we're trying to do is we have a website that has open access um, with lots of materials to help people understand the theories that we're using and how they can change, how people think within the military, to think about culture in a different way, to think about their traditions in a different way, to think about the ways in which they could change policies to make the organization more inclusive and more equitable. So for instance, we have videos of keynotes from our symposium that we held in Halifax in 2022 at Mount 
at St. Vincent University, where Cynthia Enlow talks about feminist anti-militarism, which is, is quite interesting. And so we had people in defense and, and lots of different people from the, the city as well and the community and from our network, listening to a woman, a scholar, talk about theories that are directly critiquing the military values of obedience, hierarchy, discipline, power is a, a zero-sum game. These things that are seen as sacred to the military. Yet when we bring in these theories, how can people think about what they're doing within the military organization in different ways to start to understand that those values, they're not natural, they're constructed and they can be changed. And that's just one example of what we have on our website that can be helpful. We also have Kelly S. Thompson talking about a trauma-informed theory with respect to writing, Victoria Basham talking about her experiences um, in the UK researching the military. And we also have an anti-oppression webinar and a two-pager that would hopefully be a good way for people that these theories might be new to, to help them learn about them and also learn about how they can be applied in the military context. Well, you you raised something that I'm, I'm really curious about, which is militaries are inherently hierarchical. They're, they structure power. And well, it's the, not inherent though, right? It's constructed. Well, well, it's, militaries were created in a way to I, do that. I understand that, but I tend to be a, a little more stuck in the current way of, of, of doing mm-hmm. things. But mm-hmm. the question I have is, can you have a good hierarchy? That is, can you have a, a power is always going to be structured in one way or another. And so the question is, can you have a hierarchy that exists where there is either shared understanding of, of everybody's roles or institutions that provide oversight that limit the abuse of power? Because I understand that, you know, there's lots of alternative realities out there, but how do we get to a reality where the military can be effective on the battlefield, which is something we still kind of, I, you know, we can have a discussion about whether we still need that or not. But I, I, I think some countries still need that. I think the Ukraine obviously still needs that kind of thing. How do you have an effective military and to have the, this conversation with the military and say, we need to do this, this, and this. And one of them is no hierarchy at all anymore. I find that problematic because I'm not sure how you organize a military to be effective without any hierarchy. And I also think that, and again, I haven't said this stuff, so you can correct me, that you can have good hierarchy, possibility of having a good hierarchy is, is out there that with enough education, with enough incentives, with enough thought to design, that you can have a hierarchy that allows everybody to to do what they to do without being abused, but yet everybody being part of a larger team. I, mean, I know I've just sort of run around in circles yeah. on that, but I, I'm sort of wondering about, can you have a good hierarchy? You know, so that, mm-hmm. that's the, basically the, the question. I mean, it's interesting, this idea of hierarchy, you know, I would argue is one of the logics that prevents, let's say, the institution from shifting, right? One of them. And so the other one would be like, we need buy-in. The other one would be like, how do you think about change in relation to operational effectiveness? Militaries has very specific purposes. What do you mean by we're going to change the way things are going to be done? Because our ultimate goal is to be operationally effective. But I also think, you know, these conversations can't be happening in silos. And this is why I think that, you know, military civilian conversation really needs to take place because in some ways it's Canadians have to decide. Canadians need to know what is being done in their name. I think about my students when I talk about, you know, a little case study about the Canadian military or my own research on the Canadian military, and they still think we're a peacekeeping force. They're still invested in this idea that Canadians are peacekeepers and that we're out there kind of maintaining peace across the globe. And, you know, I think this is something that that is a real gap that when decisions are being made globally in citizens' names, the information is not getting out accurately and the discussions are not happening and they're only happening in specific places. And I think that, you know, if Canadians want to decide that they want a military that's active in, you know, global warfare, then they will decide that. But if they want them, let's say, to do be a force in different places, that's something different. And I think, you know, the idea is that we all assume that we want a military 
that you know is really operational effective and hierarchy is a part of that i think there's a number of people that have to be part of this conversation and a lot more knowledge needs to be mobilized in order to be more intellectually honest about that conversation. And I think that your question, Steve, is a great one. And it connects back to culture. And so there are different types of hierarchies that you'll find in different types of organizations. For instance, in academia, we know that although, yes, there's presidents and there's provosts, but we also have a, a very specific form of collegial academic governance. So in the military, the hierarchy is very much constructed by who's valued for doing what. So if, if what's valued is an operational soldier who has gone overseas, who has not taken any time off from a leave or parental leave, has never had a disability that has held them back from the universality of service, that that's the type of person that's going to be rewarded for a very specific type of, of stoicism and strength. Mm -hmm. Whereas other leaders who might have other different kinds of strength, emotionally caring, they might be able to be very supportive, looking at what their subordinates need in the organization. If they don't have those ticks in the boxes for uh, being an operational, for instance, they, they likely aren't get promoted. And those are the ones mm -hmm. that will select out. And that's one thing that um, Kelly Thompson talks about in her memoir, girls need not apply, how she, she was a very good leader and she was told she was a very good leader, but because she de didn't demonstrate a particular form of strength with respect to being able to run at a certain speed mm -hmm. or do 10 dozen, 100 push-ups at the same time, um, about how that affected her ability to succeed mm -hmm. in the organization, which was connected to what that organization values, which is interconnected with culture. Mm -hmm. Back to your point from the very beginning about how culture is interacted with all this. So uh, I find this very interesting because I, I think what you're saying, Nancy, in, the, in, in this is that what is valued is really important. And so the, the question of what is valued in a hierarchy, you know, you can reform a hierarchy so that it values different things, that, that the values itself are not inherent in whether it's hierarchy or a complete lapse, a lack of hierarchy. So I'll have to think about that more for, for my, own, my own work, because I, I think in terms of principal agent relationships, which is hierarchy, mm -hmm. you, you always ultimately end up delegating something to somebody else. And the question is, how does that person or agency do what you want them to do? And there are all kinds of strategies. I haven't really thought about the cultural side of things. It's more about about taking what is given uh, that, you know, uh, a boss, you know, when they're hiring someone has to deal with the set of people where potential people to be hired, as opposed to thinking about shaping that potential pool. So I think about what kind of pools could exist as opposed to what can I do to make that pool wider, narrower, deeper, you know, all that kind of stuff. I do think one of the things that's really interesting about this conversation we're having is the stereotype of critical security scholars is to value distance, not engagement. And I know that's just probably something you've been struggling with because I think the people who are more in your theoretical space are going to say, you're too close to the military. What you really need to do is have a, a distance from it. And so I'm curious as to how you've struggle with this on your own. I know this has not been an easy process for you. And so, you know, I'm obviously at a close, you know, at the slightly different end of the spectrum where I think engagement is fundamental. And I don't really think that distance is all that rewarding, but that uh, conventional security scholar, I'm not a critical security or whatever, or whatever the antonym to critical is, I'm close to that end. But tell me, how have you managed this and, and how did you struggle with this at the, at the start? Mm -hmm. Well, not just at the start. I think every week, almost every week we have this conversation about, you know, the, the potentials, but also the limitations and some of the ethical quandaries, I guess, of, of directly engaging with DND CAF. You know, yes, we accepted DND CAF funding. We are closely collaborating with Chief Professional Conduct and Culture. We have, in some ways, codified that relationship. We have terms of engagement with them. So definitely, it's a very close collaboration. And I think all three of us, yes, we come uh, you know, from a, from a critical scholarly background, but we all really also want to see change. 
we've all worked in this space for a long time. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of work uh, with the military and veteran community, a lot of work with military sexual trauma survivors. And in some ways, I think all three of us want to see an end to the harm that's being done in the institution. You know, there's only so far you can get on the outside trying to bring about that change. So I think all three of us were probably at that point in our career where we we're like ready to engage and see um, how far we can push things. And obviously, you know, 2021, there was a real opening up uh, in the public conversation. So we thought this is the time to intervene and engage and see, see whether we can help advance change. And I would say that what I've learned this past year is that there is genuine interest. There's lots of people within the department who want to see change, who are fed up, with the status quo. And so we have had a lot of people contact us, more people than, you know, more people wanted to join our network than, than we were able to accommodate. <laughs> um, and so there is genuine interest in critical approaches, in, you know, a better understanding of the problem, new ways of moving forward. Having said all of that, I would say we have also encountered resistance. We've also encountered just some of the limits, I guess. So I guess one of the limits I'll mention is that as academics, we come to this work, you know, taking our academic freedom for granted, and we're building a relationship with people who are working within the constraints of that institution. And they don't have the same academic freedom or freedom to decide what steps they're going to take. And so that certainly has been a bit of a limitation because people will often be very excited about the ideas we're presenting, but then like, how do they actually get to implement them? Are they empowered to implement them? You know, or does the hierarchy limit that, right? Or the bureaucracy limit that? So that's definitely one of the, the key challenges in working with the institution. The other key challenge is, I guess, just, and you've witnessed some of this, this question of external engagement and to what extent is it really valued by the department or is it just kind of ticking the checkbox and saying, okay, we have engaged external stakeholders and they agree with what we're doing and so we're ready to move forward. <laughs> and so again, there, it's a bit two-sided, right? I mean, I think a lot of people are genuinely trying to engage and I just see a little bit of a move towards more meaningful engagement. I mean, certainly this is more meaningful engagement than, than I've experienced previously, like, you know, compared to 10 years ago. So things are moving along, but sometimes we ask ourselves, you know, is the is the is the department performing engagement with external stakeholders and are we just performing, you know, critical engagement with the institution? And so we do ask ourselves those questions every week, but I think it's just important to, to be reflecting on, on those limitations. But I think we all wanna engage because we wanna see change. And so I guess I'm, I've had sort of the same kind of experience where I, I find some of the roundtables and consultations to be, oh, well, we've got this document and they give us a day to read it. And now we get to talk about it. And, you know, not really sure how helpful that was. But I also have met a lot of people who, who seem to be really very sincerely interested in changing. And one of the challenges, I mean, you've mentioned some of the challenges to changing, but one of the things is just the imagination of what it is. When you say change, how do you change a culture? You know, I know how to change institutions, right? You change the pr promotion structure. So it used to be the, the way the promotions worked for their senior officers was was pretty much whatever the CDS wanted to do. And he didn't really have much involvement by anybody else to do it. And now they've restructured it. So that way there are civilians on the promotion and command boards. Uh, we actually have a minister of defense who's willing to read the files on like the predecessor. And she's reading them with an eye towards equity and inclusion. They have more ability for you know subordinates through through via 360 reviews to give their feedback so that way toxic leaders who are very good at kissing up and kicking down might not be as successful as they have been in the past so that's that's a change in the structure of institutions and that will have a cultural change because you change who's at the top that that changes who's leading and that changes the values all the rest of it but when you think of culture change the question becomes okay we know we there are values you want to to change the big question is how 
How do you change the norms of an organization? How do you change the sense of what is right and wrong? How do you change what people are willing to accept and tolerate? Besides like shaking out all the bad guys and, and hoping that the, the entries are, the new people are better. You know, we have institutions that sort of have, have regenerated the poor attitudes that the Royal Military College, for instance, has been a, an incubator of, of, of abuse of power, essentially. So in terms of the, how do you change a culture? I guess the question is, is what have you seen in other areas that the, the military can adopt to change the, what it can control, right? The military and DD can't, can't change society, but they can change the intra-military society, the intra-D&D society. So how do they do that? Like for me, I'm a, I'm a learning scholar. So I look at every, the world through adult education and through a learning lens and, and it is through education. And I use myself as an example. So when I was in the military, I was socialized to believe that the military way of being was the correct way of being, that I needed to act in a certain way, demonstrate a certain strength, not show any vulnerability. Don't cry. Or if you're going to cry, make sure you do it where no one else can see you. And so that's the way I was taught to succeed in the military. And that's also what I thought was was. The, the best way to be in the military, to be a military member. And as I was looking at um, finishing my short service engagement agreement contract, I decided to take my master's in education because I wanted to learn how to teach. I was working in workplace relations as a secondary duty with respect to harassment in the military at the time. And I wanted to continue to do that. And I was introduced to feminist theory, which I just, I, I just brushed it right off. I thought, I don't believe in feminist theory. Yes, I'm a woman in the military, but this feminist theory, it's got nothing to do with me. And then I actually engaged with the material and I saw my experiences viscerally reflected in it. And as going back, sort of, and I could see my experiences in a very different way and learning how my experiences were very much affected by the fact that I was a woman in the military, a white woman in the military, someone who was in operational role. And it really helped me see my experiences differently. And in a lot of ways preceded my my rush to leave the institution because I could just could not be in it anymore. But if I hadn't engaged with that theory outside in a civilian university looking at critical theory, I likely wouldn't have changed the way I viewed the world or the the way I viewed the military. And if I had continued in my role in workplace relations or looking at harassment, I would have continued to look at it from a very liberal lens, neoliberal lens, that we just needed to change the way a few people are acting that bad apples argument, as opposed to changing the organization as a whole. So for me, I think that the more people can learn with and engage um, with critical theories in the military, and the more that the military can create space for them to do so, the more they will look at seeing the need to change policies and to change the structures so that, that you can make changes all organ aspects. And I think one of the ways in which, at least from my perspective and my my scholarship, to change culture. So one of the things I, I've been thinking about is this idea of how do we imagine change? And I find that the way we conceive change often is often catalyzed by a big event, right? Like it's often a big event happens, a scandal happens, and then there's a quick response to rush and try to make sure that that event doesn't happen again. Then ushers in a whole idea about change needs to take place. But change then often means how do we not have that event take place once again, rather than trying to understand the conditions that created that event in the first place. And I think that's a very different way of approaching change, is understanding that the conditions, what was created in order for scandal X, Y, and Z to mm -hmm. take place, as opposed to responding to scandal and trying to prevent scandal from happening again. And I feel like perpetually, we're in that space, that we're reacting, we're responding. Mm -hmm. And so then meaningful change never becomes integrated in a very important way, so that it's sort of seen that what are the conditions that are right for this to actually happen? Those never get addressed. Those never get engaged with is just how do we just make sure that this in the short term will never happen again and I think how we conceive of that is very important
important to how we imagine change going forward. That does suggest a big contrast between Operation Honor, which was seen as a temporary thing of, okay, we have the Deschamps report, we're going to have a short military campaign, we'll have Target, we'll declare success, and that'll be the end of it. Whereas the setting up of CPCC in particular, plus other, other reforms right now, some of that, not all of it, but some of it is seems to be more enduring. I, I kind of wish that, that I, I kind of, I really do wish that Arbert also recommended for an inspector general, because I do think we need to have more oversight. But just the CPCC, it wasn't just, you know, superficially you could say, okay, they added a woman to the command. They derailed Jenny Carignan's career because instead of being chief of the army, she gets to be chief of the side operation that can't possibly be, you know, a success within two to three years. And so add woman and stir could have been sort of the way it was perceived. But it does seem to be that there's been a real effort to make that a lasting enterprise. So it's not just a matter of we've solved the problem. And in my conversation with Carignan, I'm pretty sure in your conversation with Carignan, there's an attitude that this is not just a quick hit response to the moment, the crisis of the day, but that there are, you know, if, if, if they spend any time listening to you about the anti-oppression dynamics that you're talking about, that none of that stuff is a, okay, this is a two or three or four or five year mm -hmm. deal. It's it's something that is going to require a long-term dynamic. And I, I, I do think that enough of the people I've talked to with the military seem to get that. And I think one of the upsides of having the Vance-led failure is that it sort of delegitimized the kind of, hey, we just need to launch an operation and we'll fix things and things will be wonderful. I don't think the Operation Honor, I mean, it was doomed to fail because A, its leader was engaged in sexual misconduct and abuse of power. But B, there was this notion that it was you know, a direct operational imperative to respond to one thing and that would that would be it. And I, I definitely think that I, I always end up focusing more on institutions than on culture just because of my training and my attitude. But having an institution aimed at changing the culture of, of monitoring the culture, you know, the culture is in the name of CPCC, right? It's the chief of professional conduct and culture is something that's different. And I think there's a a sense that whatever it means to be a professional military officer needs serious examination as opposed to before in the past. You know, they care a lot about professionalism, but they didn't really investigate what professionalism really implied. Mm -hmm. The other level that I think we need to look at is the political level and you know military-civil relations more broadly, because I think there's a change of thinking at the institutional level, but I'm not sure at the political level yet. And I'm not sure the military is really empowered to make the, the <laughs> culture change it needs to make if I'm honest, you know? And that's why we are thinking about military culture change within broader conversations on culture change in Canada. Mm. Because, you know, in the House of Commons, we can have this conversation about, about the culture problem. Uh, within other public safety organizations and departments, we need to have this conversation. And, you know, just like you, I was very much in favor of a general inspector type office, and maybe one even that that looks at a broader spectrum of public safety departments, not just the military. So I think that's the level that's still missing for me, a conversation that we're not having in Canada yet. You know, mm -hmm. the military has been asked to make change and the political level just, do, just wants the problem essentially to go away. But mm -hmm. I think we actually need to have more of a public conversation sure. about what this culture change needs to look like um, and how we're all implicated in it, right? I mean, this is a, a major national institution and we all need to be sort of part of, of finding solutions here. Yeah, I just w was going to interrupt, which would be bad of me. When you were talking about the military affecting the political level, and it's like, as a civ mill guy, we don't want the military telling the civilians what to do. But, you know, uh, the, I do agree that 
there's the other organizations, circular organizations in the broader society thing, but there's also the just, just focused on the politics itself that Justin Trudeau kept around Minister of National Defense who was negligent in his job and basically said in his testimony that he didn't think his job was to oversee the chief of defense staff, which is basically the most important part of his job. And he kept it around because he was convenient politically. And it was very clear, you know, Cy John was replaced after the election, but not before it. And that demonstrated what Trudeau's values were as a somebody who claimed to be a feminist prime minister. He valued re-election over keeping a guy in in the position that was you know permitting mm -hmm. uh, the abuse of power, and so there's the larger political dynamics of changing the culture of of the politicians about what do they care about. An enlightened politician might think you know it's both good to do, but it's all it's the right thing to do, but it's also good politics to get ahead of these things. But how do we change the culture of Canadian politics is a, is a huge thing. I do think if the military gets it right or gets it better, that can be a, a model for for other places. I I think it's exaggerated the American context. Context, that desegregation of the military shaped the civil rights movement. But I don't think we can take those two things apart because desegregation happened or started before the major uh, landmarks of the civil rights movement. Okay. And it also provided a pathway for those who have been historically excluded to have a good job and good wage so that way they, they can go out and leave the military with a set of skills and help them form the, some of the backbone of the, the black middle class in the United States. And so I think I think changing this one situation over which we have a lot more control over than, let's say, Canadian society can make a difference. But mm -hmm. we also have to have some understanding that the rest of society ain't the military. We don't have as much control over who joins it, uh, who can get kicked out of it. The military has far more power to social people than any other entity. I spent one year in the U.S. Pentagon on, on a fellowship. And by the end of that year, I was feeling far more comfortable with the folks in uniform than the civilians just because of just being around these people and and, and the way they they share their beliefs, their, their attitudes, they, they, they take seriously management in a way that academics certainly don't take seriously management and recognition and all the rest that the military has far better equipped in some ways to make this kind of change than mm -hmm. the politicians and then society. So maybe you guys are starting with the easy part, even if it doesn't seem so easy. Absolutely. But I, I think it, it depends on whether the military can shift the way it thinks about its own role in Canadian society and whether the military can move from sort of always reacting to external societal pressures to seeing itself as a progressive agent in societal processes, right? And I don't think we're there yet. It's still about, you know, responding to societal movement and pressures and, and change. And so, yeah, I'd be really curious to see whether I, I do think the military has that potential to lead on change. You know, and I've asked this question, what would happen if the military thought of itself as one of the agents in reconciliation with Indigenous people in Canada, like if it actually actively took on that role? Well, we have much more to discuss. And so we'll bring you guys back in, in the future, maybe in another year after you, you get, your network has another year of encountering the power structures, the military and Department of National Defense, and another year of all these roundtables and conferences, workshops, and, and, and your research. We want to find out what you what what you folks are finding out in in the, in the studies that you're you're doing. I definitely think that that TMC is making a difference. It may not always seem that way because the problem is big and the progress is often very small. But I do think that your your network is is making a real contribution. So I'm glad that you chose engagement, and we we hope that you you can keep up your energy because I know that managing a minds network is a bit of work. Thank you. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Can I just do a shameless plug right now for our podcast, our upcoming podcast? A shameless plug <laughs> in a podcast about another podcast? I've never heard of such a thing. I was really shameless. <laughs> Go ahead. Tell us about your plans. Oh, so we're about to launch The Bridge. 
the bridge. Um, designed to really have conversations across military and civilian lines, but also being able to have conversations about military life really across a number of different areas. So not only policymakers, defense scientists, academics, activists, you know, all kind of really coming together to have these conversations, not in their own silos, but with each other and see what comes from that. So stay tuned for the bridge. Fantastic. We'll look forward to that very much. The, one of the origin stories of this DSN was also trying to bridge all the different silos. And, and so we support all the different bridges that can be built because we do better talking to each other than talking past each other. Maya, Tammy, Nancy, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for your time.